Everyone doing okay? Good? Good? All right. Um, got a story for you. I don't, it's not really a good one. I just want to share it with you. I just, I, I assume we're all friends. So uh, I went down and um, I, I went to a wedding. I, I was a participant in a wedding, uh, officiated a wedding in Atlanta. Um, and so I went down Thursday and came back Friday after the wedding. And I don't know if it's just because I'm getting old, but now when I get on the interstate, it feels like I'm like rolling onto the scene of like a Mad Max film or something. That's just what <laughs> I-24 has become. Uh, and I'm like a 75 mile per hour guy, which is like the extreme slow lane now, you know? Everyone's in like the triple digits on the left and, and I'm only breaking the, you know, the speed limit by five miles per hour over here and it, it's just become nuts. And I was thinking, <laughs> I was getting into to like the bypass around Atlanta and, and not only is it like bumper to bumper, but we're moving at 80 miles per hour. It's like that, that really tense 80 mile per hour bumper to bumper Atlanta traffic and someone's, I don't know if it was like a door panel or what, had come off someone's car and this thing sparking and shooting and came toward, it hit the front of my car, it didn't do any damage, which is shocking. And, uh, but again, I, I started to think there was an interview I read with, I read about Ray Bradbury, who was a science fiction author in the 50s, wrote Fahrenheit 451 and he wrote for the Twilight Zone, a really, really fascinating author. He said he believed, in the 1950s he said, he said he believed that there would come a time when cars would be going so fast that they would have to make billboards that were a mile wide or we wouldn't be able to read them. And it's interesting, we don't have those billboards yet, but if you notice on I-24, they're way off in the distance and real high because we are moving at Ray Bradbury prophesied speeds <laughs> on I-24. And uh, it's just fascinating. So anyways, a couple of weeks ago, um, before I taught the, uh, the happiest Easter lesson ever last week, the week before that, Savut taught chapter four of the book of Romans. That's where we're hanging out and we'll be hanging out in it for a while. And um, chapter four is a really interesting chapter. It's about faith. That's, that's basically what the whole book of Romans is about, is about faith. And we'll define that word here in a second because I think it needs defining. But in chapter four, um, Paul has written this letter, the book of Romans, to a church in Rome, which has a lot of Jewish people in it. It has a lot of non-Jews as well, but there's a lot of Jewish people there. And this idea of being saved by grace through faith was a really hard pill for the Jewish people to swallow, right? And so what chapter four is, is Paul says, let me prove it to you. I'm gonna prove it to you by one guy, a guy named Abraham, who is not only the father of all the Jewish people, but if we're Christians, we're grafted in, so he's kind of like our forefather as well. And he made the point that Abraham was not saved by anything he had done. Um, he was saved 14 years before he was circumcised. He was saved 430 years before Moses received the law. And so it couldn't have been from anything Abraham did. It was just because he had faith in God. That was his salvation. And they were like, oh, good point, Paul. And he said, well, let me also tell you about the fact that we're saved by grace. Because look at David. If you've never read about David, if anyone was saved by grace, it was David. This is a man that not only committed adultery, but had the husband of the woman that he slept with killed in battle and did some pretty awful things, but he was also, the Bible says, a man after God's heart. That is a lot of grace. And so what Paul did is he took the most kind of uh, prominent Jewish figures, and he said, look, these, these two were saved by grace through faith, and that's kind of proof. So we're going to continue with this conversation of faith in chapter 5, which we'll get through pretty quick. It's a pretty, pretty short chapter. But what we're going to do is we're not going to talk about the faith of other people. We're going to talk a little bit about our faith and we're going to speak of it in this context. If we are being honest, and if you're new to this church, this is an honest church. 
And, and I'll, I'll, I'll be a jerk for a second. Some people don't want an honest church. They want facades and gimmicks and, and, and masks. You know, you, you're the 11. You don't, you don't want the masks. Anyways, no, but uh, <laughs> at this church, we, we just, we're vulnerable. We're transparent. We, we try to be as real as possible. And so today, we're going to we're gonna have to do that. And what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to honestly ask ourselves, is Jesus enough? If everything else was gone and I just had Jesus, would that be enough, right? If there was no promise of pearly gates and streets of gold, and is it enough, right? Is Jesus enough? That's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. And I'll go ahead and confess to you in the, in the conversation of transparency, I don't always do this. I will be a little bit of a hypocrite today as I teach you guys, okay? I'm not afraid or embarrassed to tell you that. I fall short. Um, you know what we tend to do? We tend to say, Jesus, you're everything, and I also need this as well. That's what we do, isn't it? I do it too, guys. I, just, I want you to feel comfortable in that. Oh, that guy up there, he never makes mistakes. <laughs> lots and lots of mistakes on my end and lots of insecurities on my end, but that's why we just have to be honest and we have to go back to the cross. We have to go back to Christ and we just have to, we just have to shoot each other straight and shoot ourselves straight, okay? So, you should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Has everything I'm going to say in there. Everything will be on the screens. If you have an old school physical copy of the Bible, we're in the New Testament. We're in the sixth book of the New Testament in chapter five. And then if you have a smartphone, everything's on there. Very convenient. Just get on the app, Experience Community app, notes, scripture, right there. Easy, okay? Let me pray. Let's run through this. We'll have some fun this morning and um, see where God takes us, okay? Father, Lord, I just want to thank you for everyone in this room. God, I... I genuinely love our church, Lord. Uh, you've put a lot of great people in my path, and I thank you, Lord. I pray that you bless us today, that you just keep your hand on us, God. Lord, let your word just really get to the core of us and challenge us today and encourage us today. Father, we don't just pray for, for this church. We pray for all of our other campuses. We pray for every church in the counties where we are, God. Pray for all the churches that we work with up in New England and in East Africa and in El Salvador and the different places where we're so blessed to get to advance your kingdom, God, and we just pray that everything we do today, that it honors you and brings you glory, and that it brings us closer to you, God. We love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, chapter five. We'll read a bit, we'll go back, and we'll dissect it, okay? Paul writes this. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we also rejoice in our afflictions or suffering, because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Okay, so if you're reading the New Testament, specifically any of the letters of Paul, which is about 70% of the New Testament, whenever Paul writes, therefore, you can kind of uh, uh, estimate or guess or, or judge that there is going to be a turning point in his narrative. So therefore is kind of one of those kind of turn signals, if you will, of Paul's writing. Now, the turn signal here is that he is moving from the importance of grace to where he's now in faith, 
into showing us how we can receive grace and be saved by faith and how God can maintain his integrity in saving us. What does that mean? Here's the problem. Here's the conundrum. God is a good God, and if you're a good God, you have to deal with evil. Evil has to be held accountable. That means any of you who are a parent in here, if someone is abusing your child, you're not a good parent unless you do something to stop what is hurting your child. God's the same way, okay? So God has to deal with evil or he's not a good God. The conundrum is, is all of us are evil. Every human that has ever lived is evil at their core without Jesus Christ. So what is God to do? What God does is the answer to him maintaining his integrity and you not going to hell is God sends his only son, Jesus Christ, to take the punishment that we should have received. So God is still good and we can be saved. And that's what Jesus, isn't that neat? I could stop right there. Let's go home. It's 1143. No, no, I'm just joking. No, there's more. So when we, <laughs> when we have faith in God, what we receive from that is peace. Now, I said we need to define faith. Let's define faith. This is kind of the definition we've been working with. We not only believe in, we trust in, obey, and rely on Jesus. That's faith. And when we have that, we receive peace. Now, this is interesting. Paul would make the argument that peace is not one of the things we receive. Paul would say that is the thing we receive. It is, it is the ultimate gift from God, is, is this peace that we receive. Now, the, the reason Paul would make that argument that everything kind of comes from peace is because from peace, really all other things are met. And peace is possible when we have faith. Now, that peace comes from the fact that if we are truly believing in Christ and having faith in him, we understand that the battle is already won by Jesus. In practical terms, I'm not trying to be a jerk this morning, let me tell you why I never freak out during election cycles. Because regardless of what happens in Washington, D.C., Christ still sits on the throne. Amen. Cool, right? Everyone still agrees with that, right? Regardless of what happens with the stock market, God still owns a cattle on a thousand hills, right? And that's who I follow. Regardless of what is going on, if we understand that the battle has already been won, that's why Jesus said, in this life there's going to be suffering, take heart, I've already overcome the world, already taken care of it. If you're ever insecure about what your future is, just flip on back to the back of, of Revelation and you have a good future. God has good plans for you. It's gonna get really, really bad, but Jesus is gonna step in and it's gonna be okay for eternity. If you are on his side, if you are following Jesus Christ, we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in anxiety. We don't have to live in paranoia because God has it all under control. The beauty of this book is it doesn't just tell us a bunch of good principles and things that happened in history. It also tells us the future. So we know what to expect, and God wins. And if you're on his side, you win too. That's good. It's good news. All right, we can stop now. 11.46. Okay, no, I'm just joking. So again, let's talk a little bit about peace here. What does that mean? Peace can mean a couple of different things. It can mean internal peace. Like, I have peace of mind about this. I'm at peace with myself. And it also means external peace, which means um, I treat you well that we're kind to other people, that, that we are peacemakers, if you will. What Paul is talking about here, the peace that we receive, is because if we follow Jesus, we are free from the fear of incurring God's wrath. If you have a relationship with God, 
You are reconciled with God. That means that you're on the same side as he is. And the Bible promises us we may experience the wrath of humanity, but we will never experience the wrath of God. We will be saved from the wrath of God. And from that, we should feel secure. We should have comfort because of that. We should feel really good about our trajectory and our future. Now, what is interesting is this book was written to the Romans in a time when the Roman Empire conquered the entire earth or most of the known earth at the time. And the, the Roman Empire, if you've ever studied the Roman history, I love Roman history. I think it's fascinating. It looks a lot like our current culture today. And if you study Roman history, they had a phrase called the Pax Romana, which meant the peace and tranquility of the Roman Empire. So this sounds familiar. The government would say, we're smarter than you, we're better than you, we're your, we're your protectors, you have peace because of us. We've got it under control. And the people would say, yes, we are the biggest nation on earth, we're the most powerful people on earth, and we have the peace and tranquility of the Roman Empire. What is fascinating and ironic about the Pax Romana is if you study history, Rome was anything but peaceful. Any of you who've ever read Julius Caesar, right? The first real Caesar, Look at how he came to an end. And you, Brutus, yes, you're dead. You know, like, that's how he came to an end. That there was constant incest, that the Roman Empire was constantly conquering. And at war, there was so many different crazy things. It was so hedonistic and so violent. And their idea of sports wasn't violent like the UFC. It was stick people in a coliseum and have 50,000 people cheer as lions rip people apart. This was the Roman Empire. So this idea that the world brings peace is a blatant, crazy lie. And we live in a same, very similar lie today. The world around you says, we have it together. We're more enlightened, we're more evolved, we're more cosmopolitan than we've ever been. And if you weren't here last week, I showed you a bunch of stats that proved that completely wrong. We're more depressed than we've ever been, more broken, more broke, more, more angry, more violent than we have ever existed before. And so this idea that there is peace any other way than through God is a lie. Because without God, there is no lasting peace. There may be little blips of peace, but it is very, very fleeting. The reason why is sin came in, in Genesis chapter 3, and not only put a chasm between us and God, it brought death into the world. The beauty, though, is Jesus came to deal with this. And it says in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 27, that when Jesus was crucified, this, this separating line, this veil, one of the songs we sang about it today, this veil was torn apart, which opened up access from the, the common man and woman like you and I. It opened up access that any one of us at any time, in any situation, anywhere on planet Earth can call on the name of Jesus, and he's listening. He is listening. And not only that, we can have a relationship with God and have the Holy Spirit of God in us. Now, Paul takes a turn here and says, that's not just good news. That's awesome, right? But he says, it's also awesome that we go through suffering. Now, that's a little bit harder to understand. But here's what, here's what Paul is saying is just because we are saved by grace through faith does not mean that life is easy. It doesn't mean that it's always good in the way that the, the world sees it as good. But Paul says we can persevere through afflictions, through suffering, and not only that, the light of God can shine even brighter the darker the world gets. So we can rejoice in hard times. Why? I love this. 
You ever had anyone ever ask you why do good things happen to, or why do, <laughs> why do bad things happen to good people? You can reverse that and it's just as confusing, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? I don't know. Well, the Bible tells you why. Here's why we go through suffering. Because suffering produces endurance just like exercising produces muscle, there has to be resistance or the muscle can't grow. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And then character produces hope. What does suffering do? It makes us more dynamic people. It makes us wiser people. It makes us stronger people. God knows that. Listen, when you go through a hard time, do you find someone that's never been through anything tough in their life for advice? You're having marital issues, so you find a newlywed couple. Hey, how do we do this? And they're like, we've been married 37 minutes. We don't know. <laughs> Haven't even eaten our cake yet, right? <laughs> no. When you're having marital issues, you find that couple that's been married for 40 years and say, well, what do you do? I know you guys have been through it. How did you make it out? And their wisdom, because of their afflictions, is now passed down to you, and it makes your life richer, too. There's a reason why God puts us through the things he puts us through. It makes us more dynamic people. Interesting. And Paul says this, the Christian life is not easy, but it does not disappoint either. The Christian life is fulfilling. It's full of joy, even when times are tough. Why? Because we have God with us. Literally, have God with us. It simply means that we don't have to be alone. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm single. Okay, okay but, but you have a husband, right? Well, I don't have any family, but, but you have the church. Well, I, I don't have any friends, but you have a friend that sticks closer than anyone else in your life. Like what you do is God enough. You don't have to be alone. You don't have to be alone. I don't care what your circumstances are. You're not alone. You have God with you because when we give our life to Christ, Ephesians 1.13 says we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We literally have a part of God that resides in us, walks in us, if we commit to a relationship with him. I use literally there in the proper context. You guys ever, you ever talk to people that use the word literally way out of its proper context? We were driving so fast that we literally took off. And I'm like, really? Your car literally left the ground and flew. People are like, man, I laughed so hard I literally died. And I'm like, really? Well, you're, you're telling me this story right now, so... Literally, you're not using that in the right context, so. <laughs> Literally. I remember one of my daughters, that was her word for a while. She's like, Dad, literally. And I'm like, okay, I got an English degree. Let's, let's use this. I spent $40,000 for some reason. Let me tell you how to use that word properly. Everyone's deleting their Facebooks right now, right? <laughs> oh, crap. I said that yesterday. For a while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. 
And then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have now received reconciliation. I may quote this part of the Bible more than any other part of the Bible because I think it just resonates so much. Paul says, while we were still helpless, let me tell you, if you are in this room today or if you're watching online and you are not a believer and you're kind of like, I'm on the fence about this, let me tell you not only the beauty of Jesus Christ, but the beauty of the word of God and Christianity. The beauty of it all is that there is a God that loved us so much, he saw every evil thought, every evil deed that we had ever done. Listen, you may have confessed some things in this room. No one in this room, as well as they think you know, you know just how evil you've been. We have all been remarkably evil. Evil thoughts, evil things we've done, things that we will take to the grave, right? Or that we hope we'll take to the grave because we're so ashamed, so dark. God has seen all of it, all of it. And he still sent his only son to die for our sin. He knew just how evil we had been, just how evil we would be, and he still climbed on the cross. And Jesus took the punishment for his enemies. We had become enemies of God because we had rebelled against God. And Jesus died even for his enemies. This shows just how much Jesus Christ loves you. Jesus Christ died for the Roman soldiers that put the nails through his feet. He died for the misogynist. He died for the racist. He died for the people who were hateful. He died for the murderer. He died for the worst of the worst. And he even died for the hypocritical Christian, right? The apathetic Christian. He even died for us. That's how much he loves us. That is wonderful news. And there are multiple ways that we are saved by the cross. Of course, there is the eternal salvation that we will be in a place eternally with Jesus and not separated from Jesus. But salvation is deeper than that. Salvation even applies in this life. That if we are saved by grace through faith from Jesus Christ, that we, we, we are, are free from the ramifications of sin, the effects of sin. Now listen, there's always a consequence for sin. Even if we're forgiven, there's always a price to pay for sin. But the Christian can have peace. We can have joy even in the middle of being submerged in an extremely evil culture. Now, here's the thing about that. And you've heard me say this before if you've been here any length of time. It is impossible, and I do not believe we are called to be isolated from the world. I think we are called to be engaged in the world. So the trick is this, because it's dark out there, very dark, very evil, very hedonistic. We are not to be isolated so we have to be insulated by the Holy Spirit, not only so we can go out into the darkness and not be affected by it, but so we, that we can change the climate of the darkness. So we can have a positive effect on the people around us. That's why Jesus said, I'm gonna send you out like sheep among wolves. That sounds scary until we understand that the good shepherd is always in front of us. The sheep has no, no reason to be afraid when the good shepherd is there to protect them. And that's what we are in this current world. Don't be afraid of the world. You have nothing to be afraid of in this world. As long as you're insulated by the power of the Holy Spirit, as long as God is with you, there is no amount of darkness that can overcome you in this world. None. It is impossible. It is impossible. We do not need to live in fear of culture or society. And so I love what Paul says here. He says some people would die for other good people. Some people would do that for people that they love, right? But what makes Jesus so special is, going back to what I said earlier, Jesus knows just how bad we are. And he demonstrates his love 
not only for people that would be hostile towards him, not only for the blasphemous atheists or, or atheist or, or the satanic person or people that believe in false gods. He died for all of us and he cares about us. And God goes even further than that, that when we are forgiven and we give our life to Jesus, he also declares us righteous. He declares us good. We know we're not good, but Jesus gives us the title of good because of what he's done for us. Now, when we give our life to Jesus, we're not going to be perfect. It says in the word that Jesus forgives us. He justifies us. That, that's legal terminology for basically you're innocent. And he also declares us righteous, which means we're morally good. So even though we're saved and Jesus says this about us, we still need more Jesus. We still need to build a relationship with him because we're going to make mistakes. Chapter four talks about Abraham. We're like, yes, the faith of Abraham. The same guy that when God told him he was going to have a child, he didn't believe it, so he had sex with another woman. The same guy that was afraid when he was traveling through a certain part of the country, obviously his wife was attractive, and he said, well, not my wife, that's my sister, right? Because he was afraid someone would kill him and take her. So even the best of us have lapses of faith. That's why we have to be walking with Jesus. The trick is not to be perfect. The trick is to constantly be pursuing holiness. That means the things of God. That if we make a mistake, we say, Father, I am so sorry. And listen, here's the trick. If we keep pursuing the things of God, we will move further and further away from sin. Not going to be perfect until we go to heaven. But we will sin less and we will live the way God wants us to live more. But we have to have a day-to-day -day walk with Jesus. We have to have a day-to-day -day walk in relationship with him, okay? Last part. Give me a second. This part's a little lengthy, um, but we'll get through it. Therefore, there's that word again. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law. But sin is not charged to a person when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's sin. He is a type of the coming one. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ? overflowed to the many. And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came judgment, resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. Since by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience we were made sinners, through another man's obedience we will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply trespass, sin. But where sin multiplied, Grace multiplied even more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What in the heck is Paul talking about with Adam right here? 
what Paul is doing is, is, is Paul is taking the first man that was created, Adam, and comparing him to Jesus. When I say comparing, it's more of a contrast. So he goes back to Genesis chapter three. And by the story of sin coming into humanity by one person, Adam, and through sin coming into humanity, death also came into humanity. I don't know if you knew this. We were initially created to live forever. We weren't created to die. But because of sin, death also came into the picture. Now, we have a tendency to kind of pick on Adam and Eve, don't we? we, we I wouldn't have done that. Yeah, we would have. We would have eventually messed up. We would have eventually rebelled. We've all been Adam. We've all been Eve, right? We've all made poor choices. Inevitably, all of us would have fallen. So we, we got to chill out on that a little bit. You ever think about that when we judge people in the Bible? One day we're going to be in heaven with them. And if they remember, Adam's going to walk up and be like, hey, you kind of talk smack about me that one day. <laughs> Sorry. So Paul makes the argument that Adam is the, the, the head of the human race. Now, this sounds kind of unfair, and we need to be careful about the whole, well, that's not fair game. People say, well, it's not fair that by one man's sin, we're all born into a sinful nature. It's also not fair that by one person getting on a cross for you that all of us can be forgiven freely. So we need to be careful with this whole it's not fair thing. But because Adam sinned and represents all of us, we are now all born into a sinful nature. This is why when a very intelligent man came up to Jesus in, in the book of John and said, how do we get to heaven? Jesus said, well, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus goes, so I have to get back into my mother? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. We're all born twice. We're all born physically into sin. And then we have to be born supernaturally or spiritually unto what the Bible calls the second Adam, which is Jesus. Now, why is this important? Let me tell you why this is important. Sometimes Christians fight over dumb stuff. One of the dumb things that Christians tend to fight about is they say, well, I don't believe people can be born that way. We typically only say that when people struggle with a different kind of sin than what we struggle with. Well, I don't think you can be born that way. Here's the thing. I think you can be born into sin because all of us are born into some kind of a sin. So this whole argument of, well, Corey, do you think you can be born that way? Well, sure. I was born into a propensity to sin this way. You may be born into a different propensity to sin in another way. That's why Jesus said to all of us, you gotta be born a second time. So this whole argument about can you be born that way? Irrelevant. You have to be born again. You have to be born again. Everyone has to be born again, okay? And our fiery temper and hatred is just as much of a sin as the other things that we say that, well, you can't be born that way. But let's move on, right? So Paul said that Adam was kind of an archetype or a prototype or, or, or a foretelling of Jesus. How? Not really in a whole lot of ways except for one. Adam did one thing, right? He sinned, and that affected all of humanity. In the exact opposite way, Jesus did one thing, and it affected all of humanity, the cross, right? So what verse 15 is essentially saying is by one man's mistake, everyone was negatively affected. But by another man's righteous act, everyone is offered salvation. Everyone is offered life. One brought death, the other brings life. That's all Paul is saying is in, this, in this point. So what this is, this talk of Adam and Jesus, take out the word Adam and just insert your name right in there. Because Adam is just, he is the whipping boy for all of us as individuals, for all of humanity. We've all fallen short. We've all made mistakes. So Adam is just kind of taking the brunt of it for us. This is what it says, though. Adam brought a curse. Jesus brings a blessing and reconciliation. Adam brought condemnation. 
The gospels say that Jesus came to free us from condemnation and declare that we're innocent. Adam brought death. Jesus brings eternal life. This is us. What this is saying, what Paul is saying, this is how simple that it is. Paul is saying that, that humanity's ways always fall and God's ways always work. One way always leads to death and destruction. The other way always leads to eternal life. Look at human civilization. There has never been a civilization that has risen up that has not fallen. Every single one has fallen. Every single uh, uh, earthly human movement that has begun has always ended. Always. None of them are eternal. There's only one. Our path fails. Jesus's path always works. That's all Paul is saying here. Now, some people get this confused and they say, well, Jesus, what Jesus did is for everyone. And they say, that means no one goes to hell. Everyone goes to heaven. That is called heresy. Universalism is a heresy. And unfortunately, universalism is the most, universalism is the most popular heresy in the Christian church right now in the United States. This belief that there is no hell, when Jesus talked about it quite often in the book of Matthew, there are no consequences to sin. If we're just good people, whatever good means anymore, if we're just good people, we're just going to get to go to the great beyond, whatever it is. Now, listen, I'm not trying to be a jerk today, but the idea that all people go to heaven regardless of their beliefs and actions does not align with this book in any way, in any way. And so if you believe that, you're welcome to have whatever beliefs you want, but please don't call yourself a Christian because Jesus Christ talked about the effects permanent effects of sin if we do not give our lives to him. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, if you break that down into the Greek, do you know what it says? I'm the way and the truth and the life. It has always said the same thing. And when Jesus said it, he meant it. There is no other path to the Father except through me. There's no other path. It was a definitive statement. And then Paul says something very interesting. He says that the law, which is the Ten Commandments, he said that made sins multiply. So wait a second. When God gave us the Ten Commandments, that made everyone sin more? No, no, no. That's not what that means at all. That means that the Ten Commandments just defined to us what sin was. So you've heard me say this before, and we'll say it more as we go through Romans. The Ten Commandments don't save us. The Ten Commandments just define the road that we have to walk on to get to the one that saves us, which is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that saves us. So when it said the Ten Commandments made sin multiply, now we just knew what sin was. Imagine when Moses first got that, right? He's like, oh boy, we've been really bad, right? <laughs> he started to now understand just how evil humanity had been. And the beautiful thing, this is good news, it's not bad news. It's, listen, it's not bad news to hear that we're incapable of saving ourselves. That's great news. It means there's nothing I can do under my own power to be good. I just have to depend on God and his goodness. That is good news. It's not bad news. We can't do it under our own power. It is all about him. And he loves us and he wants to do it for us. He wants to save us. Let me tell you what our problem is. That's why, that's why you guys keep coming back, right? <laughs> if last week wasn't bad enough, someone told me recently, they said, that's not what I came to hear last week. And I'm like, I, I'm, I'm, take it up with God. I don't, I don't know what to say. <laughs> Here's our problem. We do not have a proper estimation of who we are. In our current society, this is our issue. 
So here's the thing. If, if we have come into this place today, and if we want to follow God, if we want to know the truth, if we want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we have to admit that we have to be led, that our paths don't work. In other words, what that means is this. We have to come to grips as humans that we are incapable of saving humans. What that means is this. Listen, we can, as Paul says, we can water the ground, we can plant the seed, but, but the only way anything's gonna happen is because God's gonna do it. Let me put it in real world terms. Listen, racism is a sin. It's an ugly sin. Sexism and misogyny, that's a sin. Hatred's a sin. And we need to be aware of these things. But let me, let me tell you where we're going wrong addressing these things. We keep thinking that a bumper sticker will fix racism. It will not. We keep thinking that a t-shirt will fix misogyny. It will not. Not saying that we shouldn't be aware of these things. But until the heart changes, there will always be hatred in the world. And the only thing that can change the heart is the hand of God. So yes, should we be aware? Should we speak against those things? Absolutely, because this book speaks against those things. But the only way that the climate of humanity is going to change is not because we're, we're going to do something. It's because we open the door and let God allow something to happen in our hearts. It's the only way it's gonna change. We cannot save us. Only God can save us. That's why the Bible says he stands at the door and knocks. And we have to go up and we just have to open up the avenue for him to come in and touch the hearts of man. That's the only way things are going to change. But this is not the culture in which we live in. We are a culture that is exceptionally self-righteous. That word defines itself. It means that we decide what is right or wrong. It is on my terms. And I'm better than you because I've fed more homeless people than you, so I'm a better person than you. That's my level of righteousness. I'm better than you because I get to be on this stage and read from this book every single week, so I'm, I'm better than you. That is self-righteousness. That is a works-based based sense of value, and that's not the way God operates. We are a very individualistic society, which means it's all about me. I determine what is right. It is my truth. I hate that phrase more than anything. Well, that's my truth. Well, I don't really give a rip about your truth. You're not eternal. You don't set the standard. And what that ends up becoming is it is really a showcase and just amazing arrogance. That's what it is. For the, for the creation to, to say and to elevate themselves to the status of creator, you cannot be more arrogant than thinking that you and I can determine what is moral and immoral. That is the height of arrogance. It is us trying to become God. And so here's the thing. Let's say we do become humble today and we understand that we have to be led. If we understand that we have to be led, we have to understand that we are not the ones that determine what is right and wrong. So I, I got my black belt in 2017 in Taekwondo. I, I did it in 12 months, uh, four times a week, two hours a day, one-on-one -on -one, with a guy named Ken Carlson. Ken Carlson's adopted father was a man named Jun Ri. If you know anything about Taekwondo, Junri is literally the man that brought Taekwondo in the 1950s to the United States. He died two years ago, uh, Junri did, but he was the, the father of American Taekwondo. And I got my black belt under his son, Ken. Ken has eight degrees in black belt uh, in Taekwondo. And back here in this back room, we call it the dojo because that's where we met four times a week, two hours a day. You could hear screaming as you walked down the hall. That was me getting my butt kicked, right? So you could hear that. And I remember one time we were in there and we were practicing a certain kind of kick. And I said, well, Ken, I'm just going to do it this way. And Ken goes, 
Pastor, I have eight black belts and you have zero. <laughs> Do the kick this way. And you know what happened in that moment? It hit me just how audacious and arrogant I was to suggest that I do it the way I want to do it. How much more so is we, the creations, look up at the creator and say, I'm going to do it this way. How audacious is that? How arrogant is that? We have to understand that he leads. And regardless of how I feel, if this book says something's wrong, I need to stop doing it. If this book says I need to do something, I need to do it, regardless of how I feel, because I don't know. That's why universalism and moral relativism have no fellowship with Christianity. They have absolutely no fellowship with Christianity. There is no truth in that. There is an absolute standard, and it is God that sets it, not us. And if we forget what that standard is, look how fortunate we are. God has it all written down right here. If you forget by what moral code you are to live by, Brothers, sisters, look, it's right here. God tells us. God tells us. I don't need a bumper sticker to tell me not to be a racist or, or, or a misogynist or, or to be hateful. This book says it right here. This book says it right here. It teaches me those principles, and I learn those principles right here. And he is the one that can change my heart. So the bad news is, is we are awful, right? That's the bad news. The good news is, is Jesus loves you anyway. Not only does Jesus love you anyway, Jesus has already done the transaction that makes us good. <laughs> Jesus has already fulfilled the transaction that corrects our mistakes, makes us whole, gives us our value and our worth, and also sets us free from the effects of sin and evil. The bad news is, is that we're not good. The good news, the great news is that Jesus loves us anyway and died for us and rose again. And that he loves us more than we can possibly imagine. That part in, in, in the chapter that we just read today, that even while we were sinners, man, even when you were cheating on your husband, even when you were addicted to porn, even when you were lying and stealing and conniving, Jesus saw it. And said, you are still worth dying for. That's the best news you'll ever hear. That is the best. That is the good news. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Not because we earned it. Not because we deserved it. But because God does not leave his creation behind. He loves us. So what do we need to do? What do we do now? What do we do now, Corey? The key to salvation is simply a faith, a dependency on Jesus Christ. And that's not, I'm not just talking about salvation for eternity. I'm talking about the health of your marriage, being able to raise your children to love and fear God and to love other people, the, the ability to have peace in your heart, the ability to have, to have a, a, a sense of security and value. What we have to do is we have to trust Jesus with everything. I've got to give him my marriage, give him my children, give him my finances, give him my hopes and dreams, give him my future. And if I will relinquish those things to him, the Bible says in Jeremiah, he has better plans for those things than even I do. I have to trust that. I have to believe in that. I have to have faith in that, in every facet of my life. What that simply means is this. If I am lacking love, I have to understand that love comes from him. Real love. It doesn't come from that boy. It doesn't come from my house. 
It, listen, I have a great marriage. My, my true sense of love doesn't even necessarily come from my spouse. I have to ask myself, if I found love from no other avenue but from God, is that love enough? Our joy, our fulfillment, our peace, our value, our sense of worth does not come from what I look like or how many little huggy heart emojis I get on a picture. That's not where my value comes from. That's not where my purpose comes from. Do you know where we have to go? Habakkuk in the Old Testament, he, he, he hit the nail right on the head. He said, God, if I didn't have anything else, he said, if the fig tree never blooms and the olives never grow in the garden anymore, if I have nothing, Habakkuk says, as long as I have you, I'm still good. Where the rubber meets the road is, if you're single and God never gives you a spouse, is God still enough? If you never have your finances in a comfortable position, is he still enough? If you never get to drive that car or live in that neighborhood or if you don't have a lot of friends or if the fig tree never blooms, if, if the olives never grow again, God, just the fact that you hear my voice right now is enough. I've taught the book of Revelation I, I, three times now, I think, something like that over the years. And when we get to the end of Revelation, it talks about the streets of gold, the pearly gates, the, I'm nerding out, but that the foundations of heaven are made of isotropic stones. It lists them all. And then when the light of Jesus hits these stones, that every single color of the rainbow resonates, and it's this beautiful place. There's this beautiful garden, and there's a new earth and a new galaxy for us to explore. And it sounds so wonderful, but that's just a bonus. The question we need to ask ourselves is if there was no new Jerusalem or no new earth or no streets of gold, no pearly gates, no beautiful stones, no, none of that, if it was just you and Jesus for eternity, would it be enough? Would it be enough? It's not if I had Jesus and. Is it if I just have Jesus? If I just have him? Do you want to know what liberation is? Let me tell you what liberation is. Liberation is not the prosperity gospel that says God gives you all you want and you're happy. That's, that's a false gospel. That's bullcrap. True liberation and the kind of liberation God wants for you is that we will not get everything we want in this life, but that's okay. I have Christ. That is liberation. Liberation is not getting everything you want. Liberation is not getting all the things you want and being content anyways. That is liberation. That's the deep contentment that God wants for you and I. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, if you are in this room and you are seeking, I love seekers. I love people who are searching. If you're in this room and, and, and maybe you're not sure about all this, you're not committed to all this, but you're looking. Up here on my right, your left, Pastor Carl is up at the corner of the stage. We are not afraid of questions. We're not afraid of people who are skeptical. We're not, we're not afraid of that. Come up here and talk to Carl. He'd love to talk with you, okay? There's also men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything in your life, we are, we, we are not capable of forgiving you of your sin, but if you want to confess sin and have someone pray with you over that to the God that can forgive you of your sin, you're welcome to do that. If you have anything you need prayer for, please. Come on up and get prayer. 
And then the last thing is, is you have communion in your hands. This is always special, but I hope today maybe it's a little extra special. That communion, that, that wine and that bread represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I want you to really meditate on that today. That if, if, if we have repented for our sins, which is what we have to do before we take communion, that when we take that communion, Jesus already knew everything evil you would ever do. He knew it while he was on the cross. And he still saw that you were fit to die for. <laughs> and the Bible says in Revelation that you, are be, you will become heirs to the throne of God. That means when we get to heaven, Jesus loves us so much, <laughs> he's gonna open the gates and say, hey, this is yours. Run wild, run free. Here you are, this is, this is your home. We are, we are heirs to the throne of God, it says in Revelation. Not only does he love you, he wants to be with you forever. And he gave his life and he rose from the grave because he thought that we were worth dying for. Father, Lord, I love you. God, you're so good. Lord, I don't know. I don't know why I feel compelled to pray this. God, I didn't pray it last night, but I felt compelled to today. If there is anyone in this room, Father, that struggles with their sense of worth, their sense of value, maybe they've been hurt, maybe they've been abandoned, I pray right now, God, that you give them a sense of peace. That their value and their worth does not come from the people around them, God. It comes directly from you because they are made in your image, that you love them, that you died and rose again for them, that you want to be with them, God. I pray that someone receive that today, God. Lord, protect everyone in this room. Protect everyone at home. Keep us safe, God. Lord, draw us closer to you. Lord, let us trust you completely. And Lord, let you be enough. Father, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys very much. Hope you have a good rest of the weekend. Be safe and help yourself.